the book of Genesis, chapter 11. Can you imagine growing up with no knowledge of Christianity? No knowledge of the true God? Can you imagine growing up in a culture that worships many gods? All of them connected with various aspects of nature, the earth. You grow up learning from your parents and the religious leaders of your culture certain beliefs and customs and traditions that come to characterize how you live and who you are. And then suddenly, unexpectedly, someone arrives on the scene and informs you that everything you've ever believed, everything you've ever been taught about gods, about how the world was created, about how the world works, is all a lie. That your traditions and your customs that have marked you are worthless. That those things which you have treated as sacred and most important are not. In a moment, if you believe what this person tells you, the world as you've always known it suddenly begins to, to fall apart. Can you imagine being one of the natives, one of the cannibals, on the New Hebrides Islands, when missionary John Patton arrived with the gospel. The man doesn't really understand your language yet. He's just beginning to learn it. But he's trying to share with you as best as he can a truth, the truth about a God who died on a cross and yet lives and reigns. And by God's grace, you come to believe this man's message And you are forever changed. To some, you would seem like the most unlikely of converts. In the days of John Patton, there were people back in Britain who lived among churches, who possessed copies of Scripture, who were surrounded by godly family members, yet they were as lost as they could be. And here you are, on the other side of the world, a primitive pagan, a cannibal at that, and somehow God has found you and saved you. When we come to consider Abraham, we must understand that this is not a man who grew up surrounded by churches. This is not a man who grew up with scriptures. And this is not a man who grew up surrounded by godly family members. Abram, as he was called, was a pagan among pagans, entrenched in idolatry, in cultic customs and traditions. When suddenly, out of nowhere, we don't know exactly how, the true God revealed Himself to Abram and called him out of his paganism into truth, into light, and into glory. We're going to be getting to know Abram, later called Abraham, quite well. Over the next few months, 
Uh, in these earliest verses where his name is Abram, I will typically call him Abram. When I speak of him as who he now is, we will call him Abraham because that's his new name. And tonight my aim is that we will learn a bit about the background and about the family of Abram. And I'd like us to do so by looking at just a few verses here at the end of Genesis 11. If you'd look with me beginning in verse 27. Genesis chapter 11 Verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Naor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. We're now entering a new section of Genesis. We know this because we see again that phrase we saw this morning that introduces each new section of Genesis, the phrase, these are the generations of. You see that in verse 27? Remember, this is the sixth time we've seen it in Genesis I believe we'll see it four more. I think that's right. Now, these are the generations of. The section of Genesis that we're entering into is a large one. In fact, this section of Genesis will not end until Genesis 25. And its focus is the account of Abraham. Now, we see here that Abram had at least two brothers. Abram is mentioned first. He was almost certainly not the oldest. Haran, we think, was the oldest. Haran appears to have died a premature death in the presence of his father while they were still living in Ur. Nahor was probably the younger son since he married one of his brother Haran's daughters. He married his own niece. Abram, if we have the story right, Like Shem, like Abel, like other godly men of the Scriptures, like some of them, he appears to have been a middle child. Abram marries this woman named Sarai. Here she's called Terah's daughter-in-law because she is married to Abram, but later, in Genesis 20.12, we learn that she is also Terah's daughter by a different mother. In other words, Abram has married his half-sister. Now, this kind of relationship will be later prohibited by the Mosaic Law, but at this point in history, these kinds of relationships were not only considered lawful, they were probably quite common. And so we have this family, the family of Terah, who lived in Ur of the Chaldeans, and we are told in verse 28 that this land, the land of Ur, was the land of their kindred. Now, we're roughly 2,000 years before the coming of Christ. Okay? Probably more than 4,000 years before 
our day. And at this time, Abram's hometown, Ur, is a booming city in Mesopotamia. You probably remember Mesopotamia from from high school, from your studies. It's considered the birthplace of human civilization. Mesopotamia is the region between the two great rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. Babel, which we learned about earlier in chapter 11, is in this region. Modern-day Baghdad is in this region. And 220 miles south of modern Baghdad, sitting on the Euphrates River, was this hometown of Abram, the city of Ur. We know where it was because we have found it. And it has been excavated by archaeologists. It appears to have been four square miles in size, with perhaps as many as 200,000 people living there. And if you took the region around the city as well, they think there were probably a half million people living in this general area of Ur. Ur had its own market, had its own schools, had its own library. Ur was a center of commerce, a center of trade. The Bible doesn't tell us what status this family of Terah may have had in Ur. We don't know whether they were city-dwelling, well-educated, upper-class businessmen, or whether they were simple farmers living on the outside of the city. But either way, we must not think of Abram as some sort of primitive, uncivilized man. I think there are many who think that way about the patriarchs in Genesis, that these were primitive people, uncivilized people, so different from us today. This is not true. He's from Ur. Ur was, a, home, was a, a city in which most homes were two stories, 10 to 20 rooms in each house. Brick making, woodworking, metalworking were all well established in this city in Abram's day. They traveled by camel. They had woolen clothing that they used, and even though you might think wool would be hot in the desert, they kind of kept it loose-fitting so that air could, could go around their bodies, but they wore woolen clothing. They had pottery of all sorts that you can imagine. These were civilized people. Now that said, they were pagan people. We need to be reminded up front that at this point in history, there's not a Jewish people following the God Yahweh. There are no Jews yet. Abram is a pagan among pagans. As Alexander White once said, the first Jew was a Gentile and the first Hebrew was a heathen. Certainly there were some alive at this time who were a part of that small godly remnant waiting for the promised one of Genesis 3.15, but Abram and his family were not among them. These were the days when people worshipped both the gods of their nation, the gods of their city, and even individual families had their own gods that they worshipped. There were a plethora of gods to be honored. Ur was the center of worship for one particular god, the moon god, the god of the moon. This moon god's name, ironically, was Sin. That was his name, Sin. You'll also occasionally hear this god referred to as Nana. So you'll hear both. This moon god's name was Sin or Nana. In in Ur, there was a temple to the moon god. A ziggurat, hopefully you remember what a ziggurat is from our, when we talked about the, the Tower of Babel. I think there's one in the library you can look at, a little model of a, of a ziggurat. And this was in honor of sin, in honor of the moon god in the city of Ur. This 
temple had a priesthood that served in the temple, and people would come from around the region to worship the moon god in this temple. Now, you might say that the fact that Ur had this temple in honor of the moon god sin does not prove that Abram's family was pagan does not prove that they participated in this kind of worship, but there is good reason to think that they did. For example, Terah's daughter, Abram's half-sister and wife, Sarai, appears to have been named after the mistress of the moon god. That was her name. Abram's niece, Milcah, has the same name as the supposed daughter of the moon god. And even the name of Abram's father, Terah, in Hebrew, is very close to the Hebrew word Yera, which means moon. And so commentators think there's a connection there. But even if all that didn't convince us, we have the testimony of Joshua. Look with me at Joshua 24. Joshua 24. In verse 2. I'm sorry, Joshua 24 and verse 2. Let's actually begin in verse 1 so you can get the context. Joshua 24, verse 1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor, and they, what? Served other gods. Then I, God, took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. This is a passage where God is emphasizing his works in history, and the first work that he mentions is there was a time when your fathers, Abraham, Terah, and Nahor, Abram's father and uncle, they lived, I'm sorry, father and grandfather, lived beyond the river, worshiping other gods. As we think together about Abram, and as we think about over the next few weeks and months, the great work that God did in Abram's life, we need to be aware that this is who this man once was. We need to marvel at the grace of God in showing mercy to a man like this. Because Abram was just like us. He was a violator of the first and greatest commandment. He was an idolater. He was a pagan among pagans, and yet God set His love on Abram, called him to Himself, and brought him into incredible blessings. This is how God treated Abram. This is how God has treated us. Are we thankful? One of the truths that is clearly taught here in the the beginning of Abram's life is the doctrine of unconditional election. There was nothing in Abram 
that moved God to choose him and set his love on him. Abram was not seeking the true God. There's no indication of that in Genesis or anywhere else in the Scriptures. Abram was not a holy, righteous saint before God called him. The story of Abram is not mainly a story about how great this man was. It's a story about how great God's grace is. Because Abram, he will become a model for us throughout these chapters, but even his example is a testimony of God's grace in his life. There was nothing inherent in Abram that made Abram's life happen. It was God's grace that changed this man. It was God's grace that made him a man of faith. God's grace is the focus. If you or I had been given a say concerning whom God should choose to bless as the father of the faithful, we almost certainly would have suggested someone else. Job was probably alive around this time. We might have said, God, look at Job. He's a, he's a righteous man. He trusts you. Bless him with this, this great blessing. Or we might would have pointed to uh, Noah, right? Just go a few generations before. Make, make Noah your blessed one. Or, or what about this, this man Melchizedek that we're going to meet? Where he, he's a priest king, and we're going to learn that he's a, a shadow of the Lord Jesus Christ to come. Why not choose him to set this special blessing on God? The prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 14, twice, speaks of a man named Daniel. And he spells this, this name different than the Daniel we know later from the lion's den. In fact, he mentions this name Daniel and puts him at the same time as Noah and Job. We don't know anything about this man Daniel other than Ezekiel said he was a godly, righteous man. But apparently he lived around this time. So perhaps we would say, God, there's this other man Daniel. Why not set your love on him and, and cause him to be the blessed one, the father of the faithful? We would have never have pointed to Ur of the Chaldeans to this city devoted to this moon god and this, this son of a pagan father and a pagan grandfather and said, he's a good candidate, God, to be the father of the faith. But isn't it just like our God to take someone unexpected and to set his grace upon them and to turn them into someone great? Remember what Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 1 about our own call to salvation? For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why has God done this? so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. No one should look at Abram's life and think that Abram has something to boast about. He doesn't. It's only the grace of God that makes this man what he becomes.
Noah, Job, Daniel, this man, uh, I mean, uh, Daniel, Abram. These were all men chosen of God. These were all men blessed with salvation. These were all men who were given new hearts and given faith to believe on God. But we need to remember that there were millions alive in their day, just as in ours, whom God passed over. That the same God that called Abram to faith could have called others, but did not do so. God later told Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And the Apostle Paul in Romans 9 quotes that verse and then speaking of salvation says, So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God owes no one His favor. He owes all of us His disfavor. It is only because of Christ and His perfect life, and His death on the cross, and His resurrection, that God can be just and yet kind towards any of us. God could save every human being that has ever lived if He chose to do so. He could save no one if He chose to do so, and would be just. Yet in order that His glory might be shown best, God has chosen to save some. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy? which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom He has called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. If you have been saved by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, you must give glory to God, because your faith is a gift, and it's a gift that God has only bestowed on some If you were chosen for salvation, you were not chosen arbitrarily. There is a reason, but the reason was not anything in you. You were not more attractive than others before God. You were not more righteous than others before God, and neither was Abram. You were chosen because in God's wise plan, He deemed it best for His glory to set His love on you. And all you can do like Abram is humble yourself, Be thankful and do, as we'll see later in Genesis 12, worship. Worship. We were reminded this morning that God's people, even during these early days of history, were waiting for the promised one. Abram, Abraham, is not the promised one. Abraham is not the Son of God. Abraham is not the mediator between God and man. Abraham did not die for our sins. Abraham is not the one that these godly people were waiting for. So why is Abraham important? And why is so much attention given to him? Abraham is important 
because God chose him to stand forth for us as a model of what a true believer should look like. Not perfect. He's not an ideal model the way Jesus is. But he is an example of one who lived by faith. And all who come after him, who who desire to be counted among God's people, should seek to imitate his life of faith. We see the glory of God in Abraham's life because we see that what God does in salvation is convert a person out of idolatry into a life of faith in the true God. Like with Abraham, God gives to all his children great, great, great promises. And then he saves them as they believe those promises and walk in eager anticipation of those promises. Abraham is important because he stands forth as a gospel hero teaching this gospel truth that God's people are those who live by faith. When did pagan Abram first meet the one true God? Well, we know from a speech that Stephen gives in Acts 7 just before he is stoned to death. He mentions Abram and he mentions that Abram was called to go to a land that God would show him. And Stephen says that Abram was called to go to a land that he would show him while he was still in Ur of the Chaldeans. And I find that very interesting and very instructive that God called Abram out of the land of the Chaldeans. Now, they weren't called Chaldeans in Abram's day. They were called what you probably know them better as Babylonians. This calling of Abram out from amidst the Babylonian people is a picture of a call that God continues to give to His people today. Look with me at Revelation 18. Revelation 18. Beginning in verse 1. Revelation 18, verse 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great! She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, And God has remembered her iniquities. Friends, when John has this vision, Babylon is long gone. The empire, the Babylonian empire, which Abraham lived before it rose, and now this is written long after it it is no more, 
If that's true, if Babylon is long gone, what is this passage about? You see, in the Bible, Babylon is more than just an empire in history. Babylon is the name given to a spirit of human arrogance. The very spirit that we saw at the building of the Tower of Babel. This, the spirit of seeking to exalt ourselves rather than trusting in God and letting Him bless us as He loves to do. It began in the garden. It continued with Cain and Lamech and Nimrod and the builders of Babel. This spirit of pride and human exaltation took the form of the Babylonian Empire with its ruthless violence, with its rampant sexual immorality and drunkenness. And though the empire is gone, the spirit has continued up to our own day. Look back just a few pages at 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5. First Peter 5, the very end of the chapter, Peter is giving his final greetings. It begins in verse 12. First Peter 5, verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at where? Where? Who is likewise chosen sends you greetings And so does Mark, my son. Now, if the Babylonian Empire is long gone, when Peter writes this letter, where is this dear Christian lady that he's referring to? Well, scholars overwhelmingly believe that she was in the city of Rome. For the early Christians, Rome was just another form of Babylon. Rome was a pagan people, hostile to the true God and the Christians, marked by power, marked by immorality, marked by violence. You see, Babylon is human might at its highest level, usually a, 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 a prosperous nation, usually with, with strong military might and good economy. And when one Babylon rises, another one falls. And when one falls, another one rises. And it's been this way ever since Cain built the first city in Genesis 4. And God calls His people out of Babylon. Now, Abram, living among the first traces of the Babylonian Empire, is called to physically leave those people. We are not called to physically leave Babylon, but what He does is a picture for us, a metaphor of what we are to do. We are to come out of her in the sense that we are to be distinct, separate, different from her. We are to be in this world, but we are not to be of this world. We are not to put our trust in horses or our trust in chariots or military might or human ingenuity. We are to put our trust in the name of the Lord our God. Abraham was living in one of the most prosperous areas of the world in his day, some say perhaps the very height of human civilization in his day, was here. God calls him out of it. He's being called to forsake the gods of the Chaldeans and to follow by faith the true God. Friends, when we are called to follow Christ, this is our call. To live by faith in the promise of a better world to come, and therefore not to be in love with this world. 
not to fall into the patterns of this world and to have affection for the ways of this world. From this point forward, Abram's going to be a tent dweller. But there's little reason to think that that's who he always was. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and stuff, possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Look with me again at Genesis 11, verse 27. Genesis 11, verse 27. What I want you to notice in verse 27 is that Haran, this brother of Abram who died prematurely, he had a son named Lot. As best we can tell, Lot was still a young man, if not even a boy, when his father died. In verse 31, we find that Lot is not yet on his own. Lot is not yet the the head of his father's house. Rather, he's under the charge of his grandfather, Terah. Once Terah dies, Lot comes under the charge of his uncle Abram and accompanies Abram to the promised land. So first we have Terah and then we have Abram taking on themselves the responsibility of caring for this family member. As far as we know, Terah was never a believer in the true God. Yet we see here that even unbelievers know that it is right for family members to love and provide for one another. You remember what Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.8 about this. He said, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. A Christian who fails to care for and provide for his own family is worse than an unbeliever. Because even the vast majority of unbelievers in human history have known that this is right. Even with all the human depravity that we talked about this morning, we have, that depravity has not caused mankind in general to deny this truth, that families ought to care for their own. And so we need to learn the responsibility we have to show the love of God for His people, the love that He has for His family by caring and providing well for our families with a commitment above and beyond that which unbelievers show. Now, I don't know what that means for you. I don't know what might need to to change in your life for you to be faithful to that command. But we have here even the example of an unbeliever, Terah, in taking on his orphaned grandson. In verse 30, we learn that Abram's wife, Sarai, is barren. This would prove a constant test for Abram for much of his life. God's promise to Abram is that he will make of him a great nation with descendants numbering as many as the stars in the sky. And this is going to happen through his wife, Sarai. And yet year after year after year passes and she doesn't conceive. And if it was hard for Abram to believe when he was 75 years old that this was going to happen, 
Imagine how much harder it was for him to believe it when he was 99 years old and 25 years have passed and she still hasn't conceived. Abram has God's word, the word spoken to him, telling him he will have many descendants, but the reality in front of him is a childless marriage. Which will he believe? Which will shape him and affect his attitudes and words and decisions? Will he walk in the confidence of God's promise or in the circumstances of his present situation? The application for us is obvious. This will be one application you'll hear week after week. Do you walk with real confidence in the promises that are yours? Or is your life shaped by what you see? Do you live knowing that Christ is returning for you? Knowing that paradise is in your future? Knowing one day you will join Christ and the saints in judging the angels and the wicked and that you will enter into a new heavens and a new earth? You will live in eternal gladness forever. Do you walk knowing that that is true of you? Do you live like one who that is true of you? You cling to possessions because you know whatever you have now is passing away and so much more is in your future. Do you believe the glorious promises that God has given you? Do you believe them on Monday mornings? Do you believe them when the person in front of you is going 10 miles per hour and you're late for work? These things are still true. Even if one day you hold the lifeless body of your spouse in your arms, will you still believe that these things are true of you? After the death of his son, Haran, Terah packs up the family and they leave Ur. We're told that they head towards Canaan. We have no idea why Terah chooses to pack up the family and head for Canaan. It is possible, and some suggest, that Abram told Terah of the call that God had placed on his life and that Terah said, okay, we'll all go. And he packs up the family and they, they all start heading to the land that God would show them. And so when it says Canaan here, Terah didn't know at first that it was Canaan that they were heading for, but they were following the call that God gave to Abram, perhaps. What we do know is that instead of cutting straight across the Arabian Peninsula, I mean the uh, Arabian Desert, from Ur to Canaan, they follow the Euphrates River, kind of like this. And when they get here to the city of Haran, not in any way connected to the son Haran, who already died, two totally different names in the Hebrew, but when they get to the city of Haran, which also happens to be a center of moon worship, Terah decides to stop, and the family settles. Was he already in bad health? We, we don't know. We don't know what was happening. All we know is that according to these verses, they settled there. And then verse 32, Terah dies. Now, there is much more to come in weeks ahead. But I want to close tonight by asking you to reflect on Abram's beginnings. A pagan family... A barren wife, a brother whose life was cut short, the death of his father, the effects of sin are all around Abram. And perhaps you think, as soon as we get in Genesis 12, 
and Abram begins responding to God's promises and faith, everything turns rosy. But that would be wrong. If anything, Abram's troubles are just beginning. There are many, many difficulties in his future. The trials are going to get harder, and they're going to hurt worse. Yet God has plans for Abram. As God would later say to the Jewish exiles in Jeremiah's day, as God says towards all those who are truly his people, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. You and I are undeserving sinners. And we look to our world, we look to our culture, we look to our families, we even look to ourselves, and we see that we are surrounded by, we see that we are affected by the consequences of sin, by the consequences of man's fall, by the consequences of our own sin. Jesus died, that all of this would change. But it hasn't happened yet. Oh, we're changing. We're new creations we still got a ways to go. We're not walking streets of gold yet. Today, Abraham is alive and well, living before the face of God, saved by the blood of Jesus. And not too much longer from now, he and we together will enter into a new heavens and a new earth, a promised land that is beyond our imagination, where we will serve our good God for all eternity. Abram's life on earth was not easy, but God upheld him by grace and brought him into the glory that he now knows. So also, though our lives on this earth are not easy, yet God will uphold his people. And he will bring us through the water and the fire and the valleys. And in the end, he will bring us into a great inheritance that we do not even deserve purchased for us by the blood of Christ. The road is narrow. The way is hard. But God will bring us through and we will boast in Him forever. I recently heard Pastor William Hughes ask this question. Suppose you were an old man and you had your grandchildren around you. And imagine that all your life you had been a seafaring man. And your grandchildren, they, they gather around you and one calls out, Granddaddy, Granddaddy, tell us about your life at sea. What would you want to tell them? Would you want to tell them, Dear grandchildren, my life at sea was an ease. I never saw a dark cloud form. I never saw a wave that even appeared threatening. I never experienced a contrary wind. I never came close to crashing upon any rock. Every time I set sail, the water was as glass and the wind was at our back. In the whole, it was an easy life. Is that what you want to tell? Of course not. You would want to tell your grandchildren about a storm in which you barely survived. You would want to tell them about that encounter with an enemy ship. You would want to tell them about how time and time again you experienced hard, frightful, life-endangering moments, and yet every time you were delivered 
And it's those moments that have made you the man you are. And it's those moments that you'll want to share. In our eternal home, I point up as if it's there, but our eternal home will be a new earth like this. In our eternal home, we will not sit around and talk about how easy our lives on earth were. How we never faced a tough temptation. How we never experienced a difficult loss or shed a tear of loneliness and pain. No, in heaven we will boast that our Lord Jesus is a good shepherd. And we walked through valleys of the shadow of death. We experienced moments in which we thought our faith would not hold on a moment longer. Yet our Savior sustained us. He pulled us through. He brought us home. Of those that the Father gave to Him, He lost not one. We walked through deep waters, but they did not overwhelm us. We walked through the fire, but we were not burned, and the flame did not consume us. For our Lord and God kept us in His love, and to Him be the glory. To be a part of that worship service one day. Today, we have to walk through the trials that God has ordained for each of us. So let us take courage that Christ will never leave us or forsake us, that God will work all for His glory and our good, and let us face the days ahead of us with resolve, with joy, with patient endurance. As we will learn from Abraham, let us learn to live by faith in the glorious promises that God has given to us. This has been an introduction I hope you've been well fed. I hope you are encouraged about all the glory that lies ahead of us in the next few weeks. Let's pray.